welcome to This Week in Video Games, episode 60. My name's Tom Kershaw, and this is a podcast all about the world of video games. So this week, I've been playing Super Mario 3D All-Stars, the anniversary collection of Mario games released by Nintendo for Mario's 35th anniversary. I've also been checking out a new tactics narrative adventure game called Pendragon, and I also caught up with John Ingold from Inkle Studios this week to talk about the development of the game. And finally, I've been checking out Among Us with some friends, so it's a jam-packed show. Let's get to it! Welcome to the show everyone, I hope you're well and you're having a good week. And I hope you managed to get in your pre-orders for next generation consoles, because this past few weeks has been a bit frantic with all the new consoles and the graphics cards going out for pre-order. I managed to get myself a PS5, so I was pretty happy with that. I was sitting there after the presentation from Sony digesting all the news, then I saw on Twitter that the pre-orders were going live on game here in the UK. It was about midnight and I frantically grabbed my credit card. It was a relatively easy process, no websites breaking or anything like that. I did sit there for a little while when the Xbox Series X came out with one in my cart, and I was just looking at it thinking, you know, do I really need this? And then eventually I decided against it. So hopefully I'll get that PS5 on launch date, but we'll have to see how that goes with deliveries from game. I'm sure it's going to be a really, really busy day. We're getting the PS5 a week later here in the UK on the 19th of November 2020, and I think I'm going to be kicking off next gen with Spider-Man, Miles Morales and Dark Souls, so really, really looking forward to that. I was thinking about getting Cyberpunk 2077, but it seems like the console-enhanced version isn't going to be coming out until early 2021, which, to be honest, seems like a little bit of a missed opportunity. You know, now the launch of Cyberpunk has lined up with the console launches. Seems like a no-brainer to launch on next-gen, but I guess it's not as easy as to flick a switch and have the next-gen version simply ready to go like that, and I guess I'm just going to have to be playing it on PC. Well, that's it for my rambly intro, so let's get into what I've been playing this week. So this week, I've been checking out Super Mario 3D All-Stars from Nintendo, the 35th anniversary collection of games celebrating our favourite plumber. There's three great games in this collection, but I can't help but feel that Nintendo could have done a little bit more with it. I'll get into my thoughts on that first up in the show. I've also been checking out Among Us, and this is the indie game that's managed to take over the world right now. Really, really good game. It's a great way to catch up with friends, and also a pretty good way to break some friendships too, so do handle this one with care. I've also been checking out Pendragon, the newest release from Inkle Studios, and their follow-up to Heaven's Vault from 2019. So Pendragon is an Arthurian tactics narrative adventure game, and best described by John Ingold as a game of chess where the pieces talk to one another. And talking of John, I sat down with him this week and we had a chat about the development of Pendragon, and that interview is coming up later on in the show. But first of all this week, let's check out my review of Super Mario 3D All-Stars. Since early 2020, there had been speculation that Nintendo would be putting together some of the best 3D Mario games in a single collection, due to the fact that 2020 is Mario's 35th anniversary. Then, Nintendo casually dropped a Mario Direct unveiling Super Mario 3D All-Stars, and that includes Super Mario 64, Super Mario Sunshine and Super Mario Galaxy. This is a collection of some of the best 3D platform games of all time, but it feels like Nintendo could have done a little bit better when it comes to celebrating the 35th birthday of one of their most iconic characters. 
Super Mario 3D All-Stars, on the face of it, is a wonderful collection. We've got 997 Super Mario 64, and that revolutionised 3D platformers. We've got 2002 Super Mario Sunshine, which improved on many of Super Mario 64's mechanics and added the new flood system. And finally, we've got 2007 Super Mario Galaxy, which is an absolutely wonderful and magical experience. However, when brought together in this collection, for some reason, it doesn't feel as good as it could be. But before I get into these shortcomings, Let's have a look at the games first. First of all, we've got Super Mario 64, and it stays pretty true to the original game with some graphical upgrades on Nintendo Switch. The game stays at the original aspect ratio and runs about 30 frames per second, and it plays just like the Super Mario 64 I remember. I got this as an import from Hong Kong in the UK back in the day before the internet was widely available, and I still remember playing it over and over as a teenager. Super Mario 64 holds up pretty well, albeit with a few camera issues, and that even may be true to its original form. The game is still as fun as it was back in the day, and the visuals look really crisp, then there's that familiar music and open feel to the game which takes me right back. It's incredible to think that Nintendo made this 3D platformer and executed it so well on their first try. To take Mario and transfer that feeling of movement and joy of exploration from 2D to 3D, even today this game either tops or is a mainstay of top 10 games of all time lists. Super Mario Sunshine is an interesting one to go back to. Arguably, of the games of this 3D collection, it's the weakest entry, but that's not to say it's a bad game at all. Just when you compare it to two of the greatest games of all time, the flaws are much more obvious. Nintendo introduced the flood system into this game, allowing Mario to spray water, attack and move in new ways. It's still a fun adventure, with many of the characters this time given voice lines, and there's a significant graphical upgrade over Super Mario 64. Gone are the polygons and the sharp edges, and this one is much more closer to the visuals of Super Mario that we know and love today. Super Mario Sunshine didn't manage to live up to the very high expectations set for it by Super Mario 64, but it's still a good entry in the overall history of Super Mario games. If you're coming to this fresh and have never experienced Super Mario Sunshine, then it's still worth playing through. Super Mario Galaxy, on the other hand, is much more like it and perhaps one of the most ambitious Mario games in the series. This port onto a Nintendo Switch looks absolutely beautiful and has stood the test of time with it being a 13-year-old game. Motion controls are mixed with traditional controls and Mario is taken to a new level with the ability to explore the cosmos. Mario can navigate little planets and the sense of gravity, exploration and space is turned on its head. Nintendo really innovated here and elevated Mario to a new level after the semi-lackluster showing of Super Mario Sunshine. This game is an absolute joy to explore from start to finish with Nintendo trying out new ideas all the way through. The gravity and Mario's traversal across the planets and moons is truly something to behold. Super Mario Galaxy is the one that I keep coming back to time and time again in this collection. Its story, the graphics and the music are all wonderful, and perhaps one of Nintendo's greatest achievements in the long history of making amazing video games. The only tricky thing here with porting this one to Nintendo Switch is the motion controls, and this game was designed with the Wii Remote in mind, and you can use a combination here of the motion controls and the Pro Controller, or in handheld mode by using the touchscreen. It's a great experience going back to all three of these titles, however, it still feels like Nintendo could have done more for the 35th anniversary 3D collection. When you load up the game, you can either select the games or the soundtracks of each game, and that is about it. Super Mario 64 could have done with a 16x9 mode, although Nintendo may have wanted to stay true to its original form as possible, and not being a game developer, I don't know how much work it would have been to convert the game to modern day widescreen. 
it would have been nice to have some artwork or something a little extra to explore, for example with Mario's development, the characters, and some of the design decisions of the game. The games are great, and it's awesome to have them on Nintendo Switch, but when you look at other collections and what they've done for big anniversaries, and this is Super Mario after all, I still feel like Nintendo could have done much more with this package. Then there's the missing entries here, so Super Mario Galaxy 2 is often regarded as good if not better than the original, and there was an outcry from fans when this was originally announced. Super Mario 3D World has been excluded from the collection in favour of its own standalone release, coming in early 2021. And the final thing I wanted to touch on was the limited release window. This one is quite odd. So Super Mario 3D All-Stars has been made available for physical or digital purchase until the end of March 2021. After that, it's going away. This seems a little bit weird, although Nintendo could have been wanting to commemorate the 35th anniversary with a kind of had-to-be-there collection. It does feel like a strange move, as many people could discover this collection after the fact. You know, I immediately pre-ordered the physical collection because I want to kind of keep it. I don't normally go for these types of things, but with it, being a Mario collection I just had to order it. It's not something I normally do and this one has already shot up to the third best-selling game of the year in 2020 meaning Nintendo once again has struck gold hot on the heels of their earlier success this year with Animal Crossing New Horizons. This is a collection of some of the best 3D Mario games out there with Super Mario 64 and Super Mario Galaxy being near perfect games. Super Mario Sunshine is an interesting one that's worth playing but if you've never experienced Super Mario before Super Mario Odyssey on Nintendo Switch then it's definitely worth checking out this collection and understanding how we got to modern day Mario games. It would have been great for Nintendo to celebrate this collection a little bit more in-game, but for me, Super Mario Galaxy is worth the price tag alone, and it's a great bonus to have the other two games on there even if they don't hold up quite as well as they do in my memory. So the games, of course, were developed by Nintendo, it's available on Nintendo Switch, and it was originally released on the 18th of September 2020, and it's available until March 31st, 2021. Well that's it for my review of Super Mario 3D All-Stars, next up, let's check out Among Us. Among Us has taken off in popularity in 2020, reaching new heights of 390,000 concurrent users on Steam in September alone. And that's not too bad for a relatively small indie title costing only a few pounds or dollars. The game is instantly fun, it's easy to pick up and play, very watchable, and can cause all kinds of drama. Well, the game originally launched back in 2018 with a very small team behind it of three developers and it found reasonable success even at the early stages. By August 2019 it was downloaded over 1 million times and by now I'm sure you've played the game or at least seen it as over the past few months nearly all of the most popular streamers have been playing this game fairly non-stop. Personally, I discovered it through Mr. Fruit and the Dream Team crew of Blue Westlow and Rabby V, and since then I've even convinced my group of mates to start playing, and some of them aren't even gamers. Among Us itself may be a recent development, but the concept of the game are born from other games like Mafia. It's a social deception game where a group of players have to discover the traitors in the group. In Among Us, you start out as a group of spaceship engineers, and when the game starts, most players are identified as crewmates, and your job is fairly simple, go around the ship and carry out tasks. 
one or two members of the crew are identified as imposters, and depending on the size of your group, it's the imposter's job to kill the crewmates one by one. As a crewmate, you can interact with various tasks like taking out the trash, running scans, and shooting asteroids. All these tasks are fairly simple and easy to pick up, and if you spot anything suspect, like a body for example, you can hit a report button which calls a meeting, and in the meeting you have to determine who is the imposter and chuck them out. As the imposter, you've got the ability to kill crewmates, but you have to make sure that you do it out of sight of the other crewmates, otherwise they're simply going to report you straight away. Imposters can also sabotage systems on the ship, causing alarms to go off all over the place and allowing you to bait traps. Imposters can also travel through the vent system, allowing for easy getaways, but try not to be seen travelling through a vent, otherwise you're going to be immediately flagged as an imposter. The real fun of Among Us is when it comes to the meetings, where imposters clearly know that they're the ones going around killing and there's a whole lot of satisfaction in pinning the blame on someone else. On the flip side, there's nothing more frustrating than a group that you're playing with with pinning the imposter label on you, only for you to get chucked out into deep space, leaving your fellow crewmates with a murderous imposter. To win the game as a crewmate, you have to identify the imposters and throw them off the ship. And to win as an imposter, you have to eliminate enough for the crewmates. The game is available for 4 to 10 players, but the best games are played with as many people as possible. As an imposter, you want enough people to kill, and if you've got a small group, that can mean very quick games. Plus, it's definitely fun getting together and having a discussion about who or who isn't the imposter. Among Us is very cheap, it's only about £3.49 on Steam or about $5, plus you can play on iOS and Android too, so there's a really low barrier to entry for the game. It'll pretty much run on anything, and the fact it's so easy to pick up and play and widely available, it's led to mass adoption and in recent months it's absolutely taken off, and now it's dominating the Twitch and the Steam charts. An element of the success of the game is timing too, with it being 2020. You know, everyone is stuck at home and the game is very social, you can get a bunch of friends together and play a few rounds. It's really easy to pick up for those who don't normally play games, plus getting a bunch of friends together and playing the blame game always brings a few laughs. The mini-games, they're super easy to play and you can pretty much wander around and play relatively mindlessly and get ready for the great debate. Among Us can be played without ever talking to people, and if you want to play against random, then this may be the best course of action. However, I think the game is best played with friends in a shared Discord server, so when you're running around the ship you mute, and when you get together for the conversation then you unmute and battle it out and try and convince your fellow crewmates that it wasn't you, in fact it's definitely that other guy or gal over there who's killing everyone. The game really started to pick up on Steam in July when the Twitch community started taking notice and there was a few hundred people watching groups playing. This was around the same time that Fall Guys had started taking over the internet, which is another easy to pick up and play social game, but with less deception and sneakiness. By the time we reached the end of August, over 100,000 people were watching big streamers and they started to group up together and playing rounds with their content creator buddies. In September, that growth continued with 10 million downloads at the start of the month, 50 million by the end of the first week, and then 100 million downloads by the end of the third week of September. Back in August, the developers announced that they would be following up Among Us with a sequel, however, they did roll back on that initial plan this week by saying they'd be adding all the planned features into the original Among Us. Rather than spend time on a sequel and ultimately splitting their player base, they're going to be spending their time and efforts on improving the original game by adding a new level, new friends, new group features, as well as new cosmetics. So if you haven't played it yet, but you've heard about the game, then I definitely recommend diving in and giving Among Us a go. In 2020, especially when the social element is so very important and it's become increasingly more tricky to keep up with friends, there's nothing more fun than getting together and trying out Among Us. 
So the game was developed by Inner Sloth. It's available on PC, iOS and Android. It was originally released on June the 15th. Well that is it for my review of Among Us. And next up I got the chance to sit down with John Ingold from Inkle Studios. And we had a chat about the development and release of Pendragon. A new tactics narrative adventure game that came out earlier this week. So let's go over to that interview with John now. So welcome back to This Week in Video Games, and I'm here with John Ingold, Narrative Director from Inkle Studios. Welcome, John. How's it going? Hi. Yeah, good. Thank you. Launch weeks are always a bit crazy, but um, yeah, we're doing all right. We're enjoying ourselves. So you launched Pendragon Tuesday this week. How's, how's it been so far? Good. It's actually been remarkable because this is the first time we've launched a game when we've had enough time to test it. I don't really know how that happened exactly. I think it was because it was such a complicated procedural dynamic game that we knew we needed to test it like like we've never tested anything before. So we gave ourselves much, 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 much more time for that than we ever have. And then at some point it was kind of done. So for like the last week and a half, we've been kind of just waiting around for the thing to come out. So it's been quite relaxed, actually. Normally, when we launch things, then you know, you've had 100 people play it and suddenly 1,000 people play it and all the things that could possibly go wrong start to go wrong and they all go wrong at once. And then you're kind of up till three in the morning desperately fixing things while people are writing you emails complaining about them. And it hasn't really been like that. So actually, it's been quite nice. <laughs> I feel like maybe we've done our job properly for once or something like that. I'm glad, I'm glad it's been, or it sounds like it's been um, a much smoother experience. Um, and for those who kind of don't know about Pendragon, um, could you tell us a bit more about the game? Sure. So Pendragon is what we call a narrative strategy game. So it's a turn-based tactics game that plays a little bit like chess. It's more like chess than an RPG or a JRPG or anything like that. Um, only it has a, a narrative twist which is that every piece on the board is a person, is a character. And as you move around the board, they talk to each other and they talk based on what's going on in the level around them. So they talk based on what the enemies are doing, what they're doing, whether they've saved someone, whether they've been attacked. When they die, they get sad about it. Sometimes they argue. Um, and the story of the game is built up from every step that you take across all the boards that you explore in the course of an adventure. So just like that means some really basic things, but some really significant things like any character can die at any time in the story and the story will cope and continue. If you lose your leader, then the followers will mourn their death. Um, perhaps they'll try to seek revenge. Perhaps they'll be so upset that they'll be broken hearted. And as things happen in the story, your characters unlock new abilities connected to the events that have happened. So the narrative and the tactics don't happen side by side there's no cutscenes. everything is happening at the same time and everything that you do is part of the story and the story is made up of the things that you do that's kind of um, that's kind of the inkle thing like we think of inkle games as games where the player is doing what the characters are doing and the characters are doing what the player is doing and there's no separation between the two and we've always tried to do that in 80 days in heaven's vault in sorcery and yeah we weren't sure if we could pull it off in a game like this because it really is it, it really is a bit like chess. I mean, it's quite a simple version of chess. It's quite streamlined. But if you think about all the things that can happen in a game of chess, trying to make sure the story can deal with any of that, uh, yeah, it was pretty It was pretty tough. But it, it works. <laughs> People are out there enjoying it now. So somehow we got to the other end of it, which is nice. 
Um, yeah, so that's what it is. I haven't even mentioned the setting. It's Arthurian Nights. It's the fall of King Arthur. Um, yeah, that's what it is. And uh, <laughs> so I've, I've played through 80 Days. We, we actually talked about 80 Days nearly about uh, uh, almost a, a year ago uh, on the podcast uh, when it released yeah. on Nintendo Switch. And yes, I remember. Uh, played um heaven's vault as well but tactics seems a bit of a departure for or, or something something new and uh, innovative for inca how did the how did the kind of tactics element come about well it started actually with a hobby project so one of our developers tom kale who's a designer developer was working hard on heaven's vault two, three years ago, I guess, and in his spare time was messing around with designing a tactics game. And he had this idea of making a game that was elegant and streamlined, that had very few rules, but where you could read the board just by reading it. That was the idea. It was no randomness, no numbers, no calculations, no adding up defensive attack points. Just you look at the situation on the board and you take your decision. So it plays almost like a puzzle, but it's it's a tactics combat game. And Designing a game like that is really hard, and it took a long time, and we tried out lots of different rule sets, and sometimes they were too complicated, and sometimes the first player always won, and sometimes they, nobody could ever win at all, and all that sort of thing, until we ended up with this game we really liked. But we had the same thought that you know, you're suggesting. It's kind of, well, Inkle doesn't make tactics games, so nice prototype, but what are we going to do with it? But then we asked ourselves a question, which was, well, why doesn't Inkle make tactics games? If we've got a good tactics game, what's the problem? Oh, okay, the problem is it hasn't got a narrative and we do narrative. Well, how do you make a tactics game tell its story on the battlefield? And when we had that idea, we weren't really sure if we were going to be able to do it, but we thought it sounded like a pretty awesome thing to try to do. So then we started prototyping Pendragon. And... I think it took us about three times to get it right, actually. We, we had a couple of prototypes that sort of almost worked. And then this last one that we started last June, maybe, it just everything was in the right place. The game felt right. The balance was right. The way the characters talked to each other was right. And so we started, we started not quite sure if it was going to really work and if it was going to gel. And then the more that we worked on it, the more excited we got about it. And now, when you play it, what I love about it now is that it looks quite seamless, actually, like... Of course there's narrative while the characters are moving around the board. Why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they talk to each other? It doesn't make sense that they wouldn't talk to each other. Of course they're saying sensible things. And I think there's, you know you've done something right when you play it and you think, yeah, of course it works like that. I mean, how could it possibly work any other way? And you think, well, actually, I'm not sure anyone's made a tactics game quite like this before, really. But <laughs> uh, yeah, so that was how it ended up. So it's been quite a learning curve for all of us. And I think we've ended up with a tactics game with, quite different rules from a lot of tactics games, which I know some players find that a little bit confusing because they expect one kind of game and then they get something a little bit different. But uh, yeah, I really like it. It's a lot of fun to play. It always does interesting stuff. And kind of it has, because we had to deal with all the ways the game could go, we ended up like randomizing most of the boards and the way that the, the map unlocks and all the story unlocks because the story has to be able to deal with anything happening at any time. So we might as well make the game different every time you play, because that's actually not any extra work. So <laughs> we did that as well. So you end up with this infinitely replayable, roguelike, 
narrative, tactics, game. It's just all the words, really. All the words. <laughs> and you've, you've got an unlockable kind of series of characters as well. So we've got Guinevere and Sir Lancelot available to play as when they kind of first start out. But as you kind of investigate different areas of the map, you can, you can kind of you meet up with other characters and they become unlockable. I thought that was really nice. And uh, it, it makes... I got... My first playthrough was actually very quick. And then my second playthrough took much, much longer. Um, and uh, how do you go about kind of adding in those little um, game mechanics to get people to want to come back and kind of play through again? I think, I think one of the interesting things about the game is that, you know, sometimes you have levels that are ruthlessly hard and sometimes you have levels that are quite straightforward and you can pick your way across and most of them sit in the middle. But every level is a little bit different. Like I keep saying it's like chess, but it isn't like chess because when you start chess, the board is always the same. You know, the, the opening moves of a chess game are always the same. It takes a while until you get to an interesting situation. I'm pretty bad at chess, so I don't really know what I'm talking about. But I kind of have that, that memory of playing it, whereas Pendragon's got quite a small board. It's got quite a few pieces, but they're all super powerful. So if you change one square, if you take one square off the board and replace it with a rock or replace it with a hummock that lets you go in any direction or, or, or something like that, it completely changes the way the level plays out. If you change one enemy piece from a human to a wolf, they have slightly different AI. And again, it changes the way that the level plays out. So every level is just a little bit different. And every time you play a new level, it's a challenge you've never actually done or seen before. And I think when, when we found that, when we started, after we built the original prototype, we, we started to find little details we could add. And every detail made a huge difference to the way the game felt, the way the level felt. And that, I think, is probably the secret behind it. You, you kind of want to see what the next level is going to be like, because none of the levels are ever the same. Um, but I really like the unlockable. You mentioned the unlockable characters. That's really fun, because... Yeah, some of them are quite hard to unlock. But if you have a character who's hard to unlock, they can also be ridiculously overpowered. So after you've struggled through with Lancelot playing kind of a very strategic game, then you can unlock the archer who has a bow and arrow. And obviously a bow and arrow is really useful, actually, in a tactics game. So you can play a nice sort of uh, a playthrough where you can really just leather everybody from a distance. And then if that gets too easy, fine. Next game, you don't play with the archer. You go back to playing with someone else. Um, my favorite is Sir Gawain, who's like a drunk, and he's, his starting special move is a kind of, in, inside the code base, it's called a Highland Fling, which is not what a Highland Fling is, but basically <laughs> he grabs people and throws them over his shoulder. And it just completely messes up the enemy strategy construction. So he's tearing about the place, just chucking people around the board. <laughs> it's just a lot of fun. And it's very characterful. Um, and you have to figure out how to use it. So there's kind of strategy there too. And as you um, as you kind of play through, um, you can actually unlock um, kind of new powers and new abilities. The way that the pieces kind of move around the board, for example, you can kind of um, run uh, two players through who are kind of uh, right next to each other, or you can kind of jump right to the other side of the board. Um, how how did you kind of or do you have any kind of favorite mechanics uh, like that? I guess you've got to be careful not to make it too overpowered, um, but also, uh, yeah, not, not make it too easy too. Well, like when we started designing them, we were really worried about, about the overpowered problem, actually. We were really cautious about what we introduced 
because we found that every time we tweaked a rule even a tiny bit, it would have a huge effect on the way the game played out. And then after a while, partly, partly we linked the abilities to a resource, to this resolve point system that you collect up off the board. So that gave us a natural way to pace out the special moves so you couldn't just completely use them all the time. You know, I mentioned the archer and her bow shot, but actually it's rare to be able to do more than two shots in a level, maybe three because of the cost of each shot. So fine, that works nicely. But then the other thing we discovered was that actually overpowered moves are really fun. They just need to be expensive. So towards the end of development, we started letting all the crazy ideas that we'd written down and said, no, we, we can't possibly include that. That's too silly. And we put them in the game. We just make them cost a lot. So Morgana Le Fay, who's like a witch, uh, can pick up the ability to turn her opponents into a bush. And it's really expensive, so you don't get to do it very much. But it's, it's really fun. And so, you know, you get to the end of the game and there's this final one-on-one -on -one duel against the evil Sir Mordred, who's quite... But if you happen to be playing a small Guana Le Fay, you can just turn him into a bush. And it's a good ending to the game. And, you know, if you want to play a proper ending to the game, that's fine. You just do it with a different character. And I kind of love the, the structure of the game, the replayability of the game, means that we can afford to mess about with it sometimes so it doesn't have to be totally serious like you can have you can have run-throughs which are all about the tactics and all about the strategy and then you can have run-throughs which are just about turning everybody into bushes and having a good time and seeing what goes wrong and the game can support both of those because it's you know we finish your run you start another one you do it a different way i kind of love that in the design i think that's really really nice it's there's some really touching moments there as well um you've got um the narrative choices that you can make throughout the game um, sort of all lead up to that kind of final showdown. I, I had a, a Guinevere playthrough and we got, got to the final showdown and uh, uh, un, I unfortunately sacrificed Guinevere <laughs> for, for King Arthur. But it, I, was really, I was really touched in that moment. It was, yeah. it, was a, it was a really sad moment. But there's also moments that are really funny as well and it, it really sort of um, pulls on the heartstrings one minute but also um, you know really made me laugh the next so I think yeah I think you've you've got an absolutely fantastic balance of um, sort of drawing out the emotion of the of the player. Um, yeah I, I think one thing I really feel is that like tactics games and chess games have this reputation of being stone cold macho you know really tough logical things and like, it's nice to mix that up with a bit more of the kind of, well, we're all human, actually. Like, if you imagine chess as real people, like, it's pretty damn dark, actually. <laughs> like, everyone's just charging to their death and they're getting mowed down by bishops. I mean, it's, you know, it's a bad place to be. So it's nice if the game can bring a little bit of that kind of gravitas, but also humour into, into the game. I think that's fun. How how did you come about with the kind of uh, Arthurian kind of theme of the game? Was it from originally sort of having to think about chess and kings and queens and um, going into that, or was it was it something different? So I'm a massive Arthurian nerd, actually, and I always have been. Like my my favourite book when I was a kid was the uh, the Once and Future King by T. H. White, which is a fantastic Arthurian retelling. It's sort of historical but not too historical and it's really emotional and really soulful and it's just brilliant and so I've always wanted to make an Arthur game but I've never really known what to do with it because like you could make a kind of 80 days going on a quest for the holy grail but you know it feels a bit silly and a bit fly away and 
you know, what sort of choices would you be making as these knights roaming around Britain? And I, it never really landed for me. So we were playing this tactics game and thinking about whether we could give it a narrative. And I, I guess the idea of doing an Arthurian story popped into my head quite early on just because it's something that I was interested in anyway. So, you know, I started calling the pieces on the board Lancelot and Arthur and Guinevere, but they were just pieces on a board at that point. We weren't even, we hadn't gone very far down the narrative angle. But I think what really fixed it for me was actually when I worked out which bit of the Arthurian story I wanted to, I wanted it to be, because it's a replayable game. And it's a game where you travel across the country to get to a goal. And none of that really fits the Arthurian legend at all until I realized this, this moment at the end of the, the reign of King Arthur when everything's going wrong and there's this final battle at Camlan where he's going to face Mordred and it's not going to go well and Camelot has already fallen. And I realized that was just a great setting because it made total sense with our mechanics. It had this sense of one last desperate push, like the one last fight where everything is on the line. So it's okay to have your heroes throw themselves like to their death. It's okay to sacrifice Guinevere in a run through. If you did that in the middle of the Arthurian legends, it would make no sense at all. But if you do it at the end, yeah, Guinevere can absolutely get sacrificed to save King Arthur for five minutes more. That makes perfect narrative sense. And that was a real unlock for me. And I think the other thing that got me really interested in it was actually just the resonance for me, which the Arthurian legend has always had which is the, the kind of political side of it that, you know, Arthur represents the idea, this myth of Arthur and the round table, which we have totally got in the British consciousness all the time. We think of ourselves as good and honorable and noble people. And it goes back to this, this legend of the round table. And that's what, that's what government should be like, right? It should be just and open and ruled by a consensus of opinion. And the, the people in power should be kind and noble and honorable and right now, when you look at the people who are in charge here in the UK, or you look at the people who are in charge in the US, they couldn't really be further from the dream of King Arthur in the round table. They couldn't really be more cruel or more selfish or care less about the people who they're supposed to care for. And that sense of you know, this dream of King Arthur and his round table, which is destroyed by his miserable little son, Mordred, who doesn't have, who doesn't want anything apart from the name of King. Just felt like it was so applicable to what we see around us every day at the moment in 2020. Mm. Um, that that resonance made me think, actually, you know what? Not only is this a story that I think we can tell with this game, this is a story that I want to tell with this game right now. Like, this is a story I want to be, I want to be working on. And, and it comes through in a lot of what the characters say that, you know, they know that, they know that the kingdom is doomed. They know that Camelot has fallen. They know that it's too late to save the day, but they're going to try anyway. And I feel like that resonates with, with me and with a lot of people that I know in this hellscape of a year that doesn't seem to be getting any better anytime soon. So, yeah, for me, it was that. It was kind of going back to what Arthur means to me isn't like heroic knights and fun battles and saving dragons from princesses or princesses from dragons rather it's um it's that idea that you can try to be noble and just and honest even if the world doesn't seem to want that and that yeah as soon as i had that idea i realized that this is what we this is what we had to do and i kind of sold it to the team and they were like wow that sounds really great and i think we i think we landed that as well which is really satisfying it's it's absolutely it's absolutely fantastic the the combination of mechanics and story. Uh, I I particularly like the um, 
kind of campfire stories when you, you sometimes you have to kind of stop off and have a rest what one of the mechanics in the game you have to kind of gather rations but the character like you say the, the pieces talk to each after a battle they might be a little bit tired you might have to rest up for the night and one, one of my one of my favorite stories was um guinevere talking to another member of the party and she was um talking about how a um how she, she was lying to a little friend of hers by saying, I think they were going hunting for a unicorn and she was kind of lying to yep. this other little girl and um, she said, right, we're going to go off into this field and look for this unicorn. But um, her father uh, came out and kind of discovered that this all this lying was going on and had uh, a ward um, come and punish Guinevere. And I think she, um, they crumpled she was forced to crumple up a piece of paper. Yeah, and, then... and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop you there because I love that story too. And it's got a <laughs> wonderful ending. So I think we shouldn't tell people on the podcast what is written on the piece of paper, what the, what the special thing about that piece of paper is. But I remember the story well. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I think the Campfire Tales was... I, I'm really, really, and thank you for mentioning that because actually a lot of reviewers haven't really talked about it. I guess there's just a lot of things in Pendragon to talk about. But like um, we originally had that idea of characters sitting at the campfire and telling stories to each other. And I wrote one of the stories and I thought, OK, I'll come back and write some more later when I feel inspired. And then lockdown happened. Right. Um, Covid happened and we were all stuck inside our houses and there were people just sitting around every day going, well, we don't know what to do. And we feel like there's there's nothing going on. And I kind of I remember thinking at the time, I wish there was something I could do to give people something to do just to, to bring people together a little bit. And then I thought, wait, hang on, I've actually got a platform for this. So we we put out a call to writers and we said we, we take submissions for short stories. We gave quite a clear brief of how long they had to be and we'll pay for them and we'll put them in the game. And I didn't really know what was going to happen. I thought maybe we'd get 20. I thought we'd probably just get wall-to-wall porn. I thought I'm basically going to have to just lie and say, write 26 stories and say, look at all these amazing writers. And they're all called John Bingold and Jim Bongold. <laughs> like, just have to just cover for this. And we didn't. We got 500 submissions um, from all over the world, from people of all sorts of ages, and some of them with games experience, and some of them who'd never written stories before. I think our youngest writer was 16. Our oldest is over 50. Um, one of them doesn't speak English. He wrote the story using Google Translate. And I had to tidy up the grammar a little bit, but the story itself was really good. And it was an absolute delight it was such a, i mean it was hard work reading through 500 stories and like the bottom 10 percent were pretty awful and the top 10 percent were astonishingly good but in the middle there was some pretty hard decision making about what to include and what not to but it was really wonderful to have that injection of other people's voices and other stories and other ideas into the game and yeah i i i, I dearly love them when i play the game i love it when the campfire tales come out because it just brings this real humanity to the game and that's the point that's the whole point is like that these people are people and they still care about things and that stories matter and yeah no i'm glad you enjoyed that 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 particular story is one of one of my favorites and i think it's by a i think it's by a first time author actually i think it's he said it was the first story he had ever written it was certainly the first story he'd ever published and we've got a few by writers yeah who it's their first time so is there a chance that maybe um, sort of after launch you might put some more more of those stories in the game or um, 
I dearly, dearly, dearly want to. Yeah, I haven't announced that we will, um, and I'm not sure that we will. It, it mostly depends on like time and money and budget and that sort of thing. Like, uh, there's some effort required to to get them into game and to make sure that they're working and and all of that kind of stuff. But I mean, we've got a pile of at least 300 stories, of which I think about half I really like. So you know, it would be very easy actually to go and get that material and write to people and say, hey, you know, we can we can do an update. So I, I would really like to, but it, it's difficult because I also really want to open up the field again and say, you know, you've played Pendragon, you see how the campfire tales work now. You know, are there any new ideas? Um, and I don't know how I would balance those two things because obviously the people who've already written them have written good stuff too, but. Yeah, I would love to turn Pendragon into a short story publishing platform where we're routinely updating it with new tales. That would be really great. But I think we need to achieve slightly, you know, slightly higher player numbers to really justify that. Mm. <laughs> it's like, you know, it would be good if we had if we had a few more people playing, then maybe maybe that would be worthwhile because there's nothing worse than getting people to write things if they don't get read. That's, you know, that's always sad. Well, it's it's fantastic. I love I love the campfire tale, and the story behind it is 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 wonderful as well. Um, one one thing I wanted to ask you about. I saw I saw you put out a tweet recently, and you said, um, "This is one that I never thought we'd finish for technical reasons, mainly that it's mad and it shouldn't work." Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I wanted to ask you about that and sort of the the technical reasons, and uh, yeah, just sort of dig into that a little bit. I thought it was great. Yeah, sure. So um, on the night before launch, I totted up how many systems there are in the game. And I don't mean mechanics. I mean, like, AI systems that take decisions about what, to, what the game should be doing, or heuristic systems that analyze moves and decide what text to run, or text generation systems that work out, I don't know, the names of locations, or what this wolf should say next. And it's something in the order of about 26. And they all work together and they do things like they balance the difficulties of the level or they lay out the geography of the level or they work out which special moves you should get next or or whatever, you know, just like right down to the actual AI that plays the actual moves and has to be competent because otherwise there's no challenge for you in the tactics game. And that's a lot of different systems and they all work differently and they're all active all the time and they're all interacting all the time and each one of them has the capacity to bring the game to its knees like if the board generator creates a board that's too compact you can't have a meaningful level on it if the special move generator picks the same move every time then you never see the really good ones or you know if it picks inappropriate ones you just can't use them and that's no fun either but then at the heart of it is the system which talks, where the board talks to the story and the story talks to the board. This is kind of a core problem. So on the board, there are some pieces and you and I as humans can look at the board and say, oh yeah, that wolf is being threatening and Guinevere is defending Sakai and Sakai is gonna, you know, he's pretty close to home, so he should be feeling confident right now. But the computer doesn't see that. The computer sees a list of pieces and places and that's all it's got. And so you need some way of analyzing the board, deciding what's important about it, passing that to the text generation engine and saying, right, we think that this is a situation where Kay's feeling good, Gwen's in trouble, the wolf is angry, and then going through some kind of database and saying, what would be an appropriate thing for these people to talk about? And for months and months, we'd have these situations where, you know, so Kay would walk out onto the battlefield, a great big wolf would leap right next to him, slavering all over him, and so Kay would turn to Guinevere and say, do you think we've got enough rations to reach Camlan? <laughs> or say, oh, it's raining. And like, you go, no, no, there's a wolf there. You're going to die. 
Um, or people would sort of, you know, die miserably. And then you know, Guinevere would be cut down by a bear. And Lancelot would say, oh, I really hope we can get on with this journey. And you'd be like, no, <laughs> that's not an appropriate thing to say after your lover has just been summarily executed before your eyes. Um, and that, you know, for a long time, I thought, well, okay, we have the systems to solve this problem, but can we catch all the cases of it? Can we, can we cover the game well enough that it doesn't just say stupid things all the time? And I remember there was definitely a tipping point. It might have been in February or something when I was really starting to get quite scared that we weren't going to be able to do it. When suddenly it was like it, it was like when you're learning a language, you, you learn a language and you learn vocabulary and then suddenly you learn enough words that you can actually kind of say everything that you want to say. And that's a tipping point. Suddenly you can speak French when you couldn't speak French before. I can't speak French, but I, I've seen people who can. Um, and it was like that. The game one minute was this robot just spewing out sentences that were inappropriate all the time. And then we put in enough flags and enough tests that suddenly it was right more often than it was wrong. And it was magic. And it was like, oh, my God, this thing's alive. And then we were just rapidly hunting down edge cases. And I said, I think, at the top of the interview that we, we did a lot of testing. And a lot of that testing was people playing it and saying, you know, something incredibly out of context just happened. And we go, oh, yeah, I can see it needs to know about this and we need to alter that. Um, and bringing that, bringing that home was terrifying because I, I don't, I really don't think I've ever seen a game attempt what we're attempting in Pendragon, like actually, like specifically narrating what's happening on the board as it happens with no knowledge about what's going to happen next because that's up to the player. Um, and we really weren't sure that we were going to be able to do a decent job of it. And I think I think it's seamless enough that people don't really even realize what it's doing. And that's a win. Um, but yeah, I really wasn't I really wasn't confident. I mean, even on launch, I wasn't confident that we weren't just going to get a thousand emails from people saying, here are all the edge cases you didn't find, um, <laughs> which hasn't happened yet. Actually, we've had some bugs, but they've all been, you know, of the nice kind of I click this button and the game crashes variety, which are actually really easy to fix. I'm not scared of those things at all. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I didn't think it was ever going to get finished. And I don't want to work on anything this complicated ever again, but I know we're going to. <laughs> now I just like to write a story. I, I don't know. <laughs> and so talking about testing there, and obviously 2020 is um, a bit of a unique year in most of our lives, uh, probably all of our lives. Um, has has that thrown up some sort of unique challenges for Inkle, and um, or and how have you kind of got around those challenges? Yeah, I think I think it has though. It's been interesting because we, we work remotely anyway. We have done for oh, about two years now. Um, oh, no, maybe only a year. Well, anyway, we, we've, we've been working remotely for a while and we were working from home before lockdown started. Though quite often me and Tom would, would sit in the same coffee shop and work together. So in a way, it felt like not that much change. We were just at home. We were working the way that we would normally work. We we're communicating over Slack and kind of collaboration tools and that kind of thing. But I think the one thing that we really missed out on actually was seeing other human beings playing the game because you can send it to testers and you get the feedback and you get the reports. But people, even the, you know, only the very, very, very best testers will tell you when they don't understand something or when they've got the wrong assumption about something. Because most testers, they find bugs, they report them, they find things that they like, they maybe tell you that. But it's hard for people to stop and say, wait, I don't think I understand this game as well as I should. And I think we we got to release and we, we did a, we did a patch yesterday on day one because we saw some feedback 
uh, via Steam forums and, and on our Discord server from people saying, you know, anecdotal mode, it's supposed to be really easy and it's a little bit tough. And I kind of played the game again with that feedback in my mind and I was like, oh yeah, no, I can totally see now actually how this game is, this is being a little bit more unforgiving than it needs to be at this point. And I think if I'd been watching testers in, in real life playing it, if we'd taken it to an event or we've got some beta testers just or even just played it with each other in a coffee shop watching each other play, I think we would have seen that straight away. As it was, you know, it's fairly easy to fix that kind of balancing issue because it really is just tweaking some numbers under the hood. You know, I'm much, much happier with the, the build as of yesterday than the build of, as of two days before. But that's a real shame because the game goes out to reviewers and, you know, some reviewers have a hard time with it and some reviewers really kind of get steamed up about it. Um, and, and, and I regret that. I regret that. But, but there's only so much you can do. Like, I'm, I've heard of other game studios sort of, getting people to film themselves playing the game and then send that video footage over so they can they can get a bit of that watching someone play it in, in real life but it's really hard to replicate the experience of, of being in a room with someone who's discovering your game for the first time really really hard um so actually really we're quite a small team we're four people i'm incredibly proud of of the way that the team has managed to cope with with the kind of conditions of lockdown and managed to work remotely and like collaborate and you know things like the art style have come together so well i think which is really impressive because you know the three people responsible for the art style is the developer there's the art director and then there's the artist who does the assets you know have never been in the same room on this project i, I don't think at all but like but have managed to get like a really coherent vision that feels really solid and i think i'm you know i'm really proud of them i'm really impressed by that it's kind of it's really nice to be working with people who rise to that kind of challenge so well but yeah, it's it's funny. It's like you almost you almost don't notice that something has changed, and then you look back and you realise, wait, that was a lot harder than it used to be. And I think that's true of a lot of things in lockdown in some ways. And kind of the the current you know the current way of working so remotely is, is you don't really even notice what the hard things are because you're just getting on with it most of the time. But yeah, but when we also missed our launch day celebration, which would have been really nice, <laughs> but like we didn't do that either. I, I um. So you, you mentioned the art style, uh, and uh, I think it's absolutely wonderful, uh, as, uh, as well as so the, the visual design and the audio design, as well as the UI as well. The UI communicates a lot, but in a very simple and elegant kind of manner. And I, I particularly like, I noticed one of your artists put out a tweet, I think it was either this morning or yesterday, about the sea monsters uh, taking oh, care yeah. of the ships. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's, it, it's, it's a beautiful, I mean, your all of Inkle's games have a particular style, and they they always look great. But this Pendragon, uh, I think, is is really up there with uh, some of your some of your absolute best work. Um, so, John, how can people uh, get hold of Pendragon if they're, so they hear this interview and they think, right, that sounds fantastic? How do um how do they get hold of the game? Well, I mean. Hopefully most of your listeners have already heard of Pendragon and played it already. But if there happen to be some who have missed that boat, it's not too late to pick it up, which is the good news. Um, it's available on Steam. Uh, it might be still loitering on the front page at the moment, but otherwise it's Pendragon. You can find it pretty easily. And it's also on GOG if that's your preference. And if you've got a Mac, you can get it from the Mac App Store as well. And it's on a 10% launch discount on Steam and GOG until next Tuesday. I think. Anyway, you should buy it as soon as possible. 
Uh, and if you do play it and you enjoy it, please leave us a review because we're a tiny studio and people don't leave reviews for tiny studios and they make a huge difference. Um, so I want to encourage, encourage your listeners to leave reviews for indie studios because they need them. Fantastic. And I'll, I'll put a link down in the description and the show notes to the Steam and the GOG page. So if you're out there listening and uh, you want to pick it up, just um, hit that link and you can go straight there. And uh, yeah, as John says, leave a review. It really, really does help out. Uh, well, John, I've taken up plenty of your time today. Thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to us about Pendragon. Um, it's, it's an absolute it's an absolutely wonderful game. I really, really enjoyed myself. The uh, the mechanics are really interesting. The story is absolutely fantastic, and it's all brought together in a, in a beautiful, beautiful style. So thank you very much for um, developing a, an absolutely wonderful game. Thank you very much. It's really, really nice to hear that people like it. <laughs> you never know before you release something. You never know if it's going to work. So it's really great. Thank you very much. Well, that was me there talking to John Ingold, and thank you, John, for taking the time to talk to us on This Week in Video Games, especially during launch week. Well, next up, let's check out my review of Pendragon. Pendragon is a new narrative tactics game from Inkle Studios, creators of 80 Days and Heaven's Vault, and this time they're taking on the story of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. It's great fun, sometimes touching and sometimes heartbreaking in this pop-up book-style adventure through history, and it's an entertaining genre mashup between turn-based tactics and narrative adventure. It's likely that you've heard of Queen Guinevere, Sir Lancelot and the Knights of the Round Table, but the clever thing about Pendragon is piecing together the story of the fall of King Arthur through each of your playthroughs. Players can select a single character at the start and then set off on their adventure, uncovering narrative clues and history as you make your way to Camelan to face off against Arthur's rival, Sir Modred. It's AD 673 and Camelot has fallen. The jealous Sir Modred has broken the Fellowship of the Round Table with hatred and lies. Now, King Arthur faces his final battle, and will Sir Lancelot be reunited with Queen Guinevere? Will she spurn him or embrace him? And can Morgana Le Fay be trusted? Where is Merlin? And who lies buried in Modred's graveyard? And what has become of the legendary blade Excalibur? Secrets are going to be uncovered, hearts are going to be broken, people will die, but maybe, just maybe, King Arthur can be saved. At the start of the game, players can select between Queen Guinevere and Sir Lancelot, and each character has a different point of view. You uncover more of the story as you play through. Players pick up characters as they go. For example, when I was playing with Lady Guinevere, I met Morgana Le Fay, the evil witch of Arthurian legends. Morgana then became an unlockable character, and there's six more to unlock after her. Throughout your playthrough, and hopefully multiple playthroughs, you'll pick up a bunch of characters and be able to add them to your party, which you're going to need for that final showdown against Sir Modred and his clan of knights. All roads point to Camelan and King Arthur facing off against his arch-rival Sir Modred, but each time you play through, you're going to make narrative choices which shape the story that unfolds before you. And this plays into the strengths of Inkle Studios as they built a very fine reputation on wonderful narrative games like 80 Days and Heaven's Vault. As for the other mechanics in the game, this is more of a departure for Inkle as the combat comes in the form of a tactics-based game. On the world map there's a number of locations that you'll visit along the way and each one is a board which you'll have to safely navigate your way across, one or two spaces at a time. 
Standing in your way are going to be enemies like wolves, spiders and Modred's knights, or even wandering townsfolk. Your character or party then becomes like pieces on a chessboard. Players can move in a straight line or you can switch up your stance to attack and move diagonally. Different enemies have different attack patterns and it's your job to get to the other side of the board safely and make your way through an area without dying and reach your final destination and that's showdown with Arthur versus Modred. At the start of the game there's a nice tutorial taking you through the basics like moving, attacking and complementary mechanics like the morale meter and rations. If you get in a real sticky situation then you can flee, but beware, this doesn't always work and you could be caught in a very deadly situation. As you make progress you'll pick up new skills and abilities like being able to push forward and gain an additional square or powerful skills like skewering two opponents in a line. The tactics elements have been boiled down to the bare essentials which makes the game very accessible but that doesn't mean the game is easy by any stretch. You'll have to keep an eye on what your enemies are doing and plan a few moves ahead. Don't just go charging into battle as your playthrough could end very, very quickly. One false move and you're dead, so do be careful. This is where the combination of tactics and narrative come into play and is something quite unique. John Ingold from Inkle Studios recently described the game as a game of chess where the pieces talk to one another. At certain moments in battle you do have narrative opportunities and this can swing the outcome of a battle one way or the other. Players can then escalate and de-escalate the situation with one narrative choice, so do think carefully about what you say. The battle mechanics are easy to understand and if you're well versed in tactics games then you'll likely take to this like a duck to water. Combined with attacks and movement you've got the morale meter and if you play defensively then your morale is going to go down. And it's wise to keep morale high as it will allow you to unlock new abilities in battle so try and balance the morale and keeping it on the higher side. You don't want to be backed into a corner with low morale only to find a move that could save you as disabled due to low morale and believe me, I know. Rations are key to keeping healthy and ready for a fight throughout the game and as the days unfold in your playthrough you'll need to rest and rations will help you replenish that health making sure you're ready for the fight. Replayability definitely comes to mind when I think about Pendragon. As you unlock new characters along the way you'll want to play through again from the start with these new faces to see and hear their point of view. Lancelot proclaims his love for Guinevere and hopes Arthur will find it in himself to forgive him whereas Guinevere just longs to see her king again. A single playthrough of the game is relatively short, but you won't uncover all of the details in a single playthrough. Each time you start a new playthrough the board is randomised, so you're going to get something new each time you play, whether that be unlocking a new playable character or finding one of the many hidden secrets within Pendragon. Finding out what Merlin's up to as well as the legendary sword Excalibur was high on my to-do list. There's plenty of great secrets in the game and they'll keep you coming back time after time. There's something about this combination of tactics and replayable story I really really enjoyed with Pendragon. I vaguely knew the story of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, but uncovering it through this series of different character perspectives is super fun and the gameplay and mechanics are really really enjoyable too. I found the game quite tricky, but I'm not a huge tactics game player, so experts in the field may have much easier time of it than I did. There are three main beats to the game, tactics, narrative adventure and Arthurian lore. If you're interested in any of these or a combination, then I definitely recommend Pendragon to you. The game is charming with a beautiful pop-up book style artwork and excellent music, so it's a pleasure to play through again and you'll want to as the characters are lovable and interesting. Successful playthroughs unlock higher difficulty tiers, so the more you play through the better you're going to get and you have the option of ramping up that challenge. 
The overall visual design from the way the narrative unfolds to the clean UI, clearly explaining what's going on is a massive strength of the game. And it's beautiful too. So I definitely enjoyed my time playing Pendragon and I would definitely recommend it to you. So the developer was Inkle Studios, it's available on PC via Steam and GOG and you can check out the links down below to those stores. Well that was my review there of Pendragon, well next up let's have a look at the all platform charts. So at number 10 this week we've got Grand Theft Auto 5, that's down one place from last week's number 9. Number 9 this week we've got eFootball Pez 2021. And number 8 this week we've got Minecraft Dungeons, down two places from last week's number 6. Number 7 this week we've got Minecraft. And number 6 this week we've got WWE 2K Battlegrounds. Number 5 this week holding steady it's Mario Kart 8 Deluxe. Number 4 this week it's Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1 and 2. That's down two places from last week's number 2. And number three this week, holding steady, it's Animal Crossing New Horizons. And number two this week, it's Marvel's Avengers, down from last week's number one. And in at number one this week, we've got Super Mario 3D All-Stars. So congrats to the team from Nintendo for the number one this week. Well, that's it for the charts this week. And next up, let's have a look at what we've got coming up in the next few weeks. So on the 29th of September, we've got Spelunky 2 coming to PC, and we've got Warsaw coming out on the PlayStation 4. Then on October the 1st, we've got a few games. We've got Super Mario Bros. 35, which looks a little bit like Tetris 99. We've got Warsaw coming to Nintendo Switch, and we've got Wise Origin also coming to Switch. Then on the 2nd of October, we've got Crash Bandicoot 4, It's About Time. That's coming out on PS4 and Xbox One. And we've got Star Wars Squadrons, that's coming out on PS4, Xbox One and PC. We've also got Warsaw, that's coming out on Xbox One. Then on the 5th of October we've got Four Gone, that's coming out on PS4, Xbox One and Switch. And we've got Nickelodeon Kart Racers 2 Grand Prix, coming out on PS4, Xbox One and Switch. Then on the 6th of October we've got Baldur's Gate 3, coming to Stadia and PC. On the 8th of October we've got I Am Dead, that's coming out on Switch and PC. Also on the 8th we've got Ickenfell, coming out on PS4, Xbox One, Switch and PC. And Ride 4, coming out on PS4, Xbox One and Switch. Finally on the 8th we got The Uncertain, Light of the End, that's coming out on PC. Then on the 9th we got Ben 10, Power Trip, that's coming out on PS4, Xbox One, Switch and PC. And we got FIFA 21, coming out on PS4, Xbox One and PC. And finally we got The Survivalists, coming out on PS4, Xbox One, Switch and PC. Well that is it for this week's episode, and if you want to get involved in the show then contact me through patreon.com forward slash thisweekinvideogames or check out the latest on the website. Send in your questions, your comments, or your video game stories. I'm always interested in hearing from you. I'm also available on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram to search This Week in Video Games on your favourite platform and join in that conversation. Well, thanks so much for listening, and for more This Week in Video Games content like this, subscribe on YouTube and share with a friend. To join our community, check out the Discord link in the description, and you can follow me on Twitter at TWIVG Podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast or found it useful, liking and sharing it would really help me out. Otherwise, check out the other podcasts in the feed. Thanks again, and I'll see you in the next one. <laughs>